I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone-chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. Welcome to this week's episode. I started out working on a simple missing 411 case, and that morphed into several cases, plus the discovery of what is called the Michigan Triangle. Because every time I set out to just do a very quick, simple case, it never, ever ends up being that way. Which is fine. I love having more information than I expected, but then it's a scramble to try to get everything completed in time. So you might have guessed we are heading to Michigan this week. Michigan, for those who aren't aware, is a state in the upper Midwestern part of the United States in the Great Lakes region. It is the 10th largest state by population and the 11th largest by area and the largest by area east of the Mississippi. Its name comes from a variant of the original Ojibwe word Michigami, which means large water or large lake. Michigan is second for state with the most water. Alaska is number one with the most water. And it's interesting to note that Alaska also has a triangle with strange occurrences, and we did cover that. And maybe there's some sort of connection with the water or rather, the energy that the water is able to conduct. There is uh, quite a few theories out there that if uh, a location has a lot of groundwater or water nearby, that that can actually help generate energy needed for hauntings or paranormal happenings, that because water is a good electrical conductor, it beefs up that crap, so to speak, I don't know. So the best way to structure this, I think, is to talk about the missing cases first and then tell you about the triangle. And I'm going to attempt to do this chronologically. I think I have ordered everything in order of how it happened. We'll see. The first case that I'm going to cover is the case of the disappearance of F. Hale Courier on October 17, 1946. F. Hale Courier was 53 at the time of his disappearance and was 6 feet tall and about 165 pounds. He owned a general store in Capic, Michigan for 30 years and was well known and well liked there. Courier was a World War I veteran, having served 18 months with most of that in France. He was known as an able woodsman. Mr. and Mrs. Courier and a Mr. and Mrs. Clarence Waltz left to go to their jointly owned hunting cabin located in Newberry, Michigan, which was about four hours away. They arrived around 8.30 a.m. on Sunday, the morning of October 17, 1946. They joined Dr. and Mrs. Grover Brockman of Detroit at the camp, which was located north of Chessboro Lake. So this camp to explain, is owned by several people. The Couriers, the Waltz, the Brockmans, and I think there's another family 
the Langs. I think that's her last name. We'll find out. It's the next couple that I happen to mention. They all own this camp. So the Brockmans had arrived several days prior to the Waltzes and the Couriers. And that afternoon, the three men, F. Hale Courier, Mr. Waltz and Mr. Brockman, went for a walk and took their guns because it was still bird season. Each of the men took a different trail. When he left, Courier was wearing army combat boots, army dungarees and jacket, a green wool shirt and tan cap, and he was carrying a 22 caliber rifle. On the back of his jacket was a small hunting license, number HA-1033. He also had a compass with him and plenty of matches, and he walked west from the camp along the ridge. Courier knew the area well, as he had been using the camp for the past five years. Mr. and Mrs. Lang arrived at 7.30 p.m. that night, and they, along with others, were worried that Courier hadn't returned yet and that it had snowed. Michigan State Police and the Department of Conservation were notified. Michigan State Police, Department of Conservation officers, and citizens began to search. Three planes were used to search, conservation planes along with privately owned planes. On Wednesday the 20th of October, between 11 p.m. and 12 a.m., 43 professional men arrived from Capic to assist in the search, traveling four hours to get there. People from Capic also provided meals for the searchers. Residents of Newberry, where the cabin was located, were amazed at the loyalty of the people of Capic. On Thursday, more Capic volunteers arrived and there were over a hundred men searching. Some of those from Capic would remain a few days, some for a week, but as one group from Capic went home, another group would arrive to take their place. Members of the local fire department also searched. Remember, Newberry is about four hours or 367 miles away from Capic, so these people are traveling four hours to get there to help search. There were 30 high schoolers from Newberry who joined in the search as well, and by Sunday, October 24th, there were 200 searchers. The area was searched from early morning until dark. Searchers lined up in groups of 25, 50, as high as 85 abreast, about 10 to 15 feet apart, in straight lines moving through the heavily wooded area. The lines were led by the Michigan State Police. A Native American tracker was involved in the search as well. He did a three-mile search radius the day after Courier went missing, and he never saw any tracks in the snow, meaning Courier made no movements in the area after the snowfall that happened the evening he went missing. By the end of the search, foul play was suspected. Courier was never found, and neither was his rifle. There was another search going on northwest of Newberry, where a trapper went missing just days before Courier, though no specifics could be found on that case. Law enforcement said that Courier's disappearance reminded them of another missing man back in 1910. A man named Brownlee pitched camp about 10 miles from Newberry. He and his hunting partner went out scouting the area, and Brownlee, like Courier, never returned. The search for Brownlee went into the winter, but no trace was found. A few years passed and a hunter found remains and a gun only a few yards from a well-traveled road, 
which was also an area that had been searched. It was Brownlee. The next case is slightly stranger and involves two men and a plane. It's actually a fighter jet. First Lieutenant Felix Monclaw Jr., 27, and Second Lieutenant Robert Wilson, 22, were experienced with operating the Northrop F-89 Scorpion, a jet-powered fighter designed as an all-weather interceptor. On November 23, 1953, U.S. Air Defense Command noticed a blip on the radar near the American-Canadian border. The object was unidentified and flying in restricted airspace over Lake Superior. At 5.22 p.m., a jet was scrambled to intercept the unidentified aircraft to see what was going on. The jet was piloted by 1st Lieutenant Moncla, with 2nd Lieutenant Wilson acting as the radar observer. Both men had hundreds of hours of flight experience. In fact, Moncla had 811 hours of flying under his belt, and 121 of those were in a similar aircraft. Lieutenant Moncla and Wilson had trouble clocking the object because it kept changing course, so the ground control was directing the F-89, which was traveling at a speed of 500 miles per hour. The radar operator guided the jet from 25,000 feet to 7,000 feet as they watched one radar blip chase the other on the radar screen. Eventually, the jet caught up to the unidentified object at an altitude of 8,000 feet, about 160 miles northwest of Sioux Locks. That's when the two radar blips locked together, or basically converged and merged into one blip, meaning the jet had overtaken the craft. And that's when the F-89 disappeared from the ground-controlled interception station's radar screen. Then, the radar blip of the unidentified craft veered off and vanished as well. The Air Force's statement said the jet was followed by radar until it merged with an object 70 miles off Keweenaw Point in Upper Michigan, but they eventually released a revised statement. The new statement said the ground control radar operator had misread the radar and that the F-89 had successfully completed the mission, identifying the UFO as a Royal Canadian Air Force C-47 aircraft flying some 30 miles off course. Lieutenant Moncla, probably stricken with vertigo, crashed into the lake during the return to base. Canadian officials refuted the account, saying no Canadian flights had taken place in the area that night. Apparently, two separate Air Force representatives provided Lieutenant Moncla's widow with contradictory explanations of the incident. In one version of events, the pilot had crashed into the lake while flying too low, in the other, the jet exploded at a high altitude. Project Blue Book also claimed that the jet successfully accomplished its mission and that the crash was an accident, probably caused by an attack of vertigo. It attributed the abnormal radar behavior to unusual atmospheric conditions and deemed the inability to recover wreckage as understandable given the deep water. Investigators from the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP, discovered that the mention of the mission had been expunged from official records. And the Aerospace Technical Intelligence Center's official line on the case was, 
There is no record in the Air Force files of sighting at Kinross Air Force Base on 23 November 1953. There is no case in the files which even closely parallels these circumstances. At the time of the jet's disappearance, both Canadian and U.S. Air Force Coast Guard searched extensively for any sign of the jet wreckage in the crew. Their search was hampered at times by snow and poor visibility. Both Moncla and Wilson wore life vests, and the jet had two hours of fuel along with two rubber rafts. There was no wreckage found. And let's say that the unidentified craft was a Canadian plane. How do they not see a fighter jet nearly colliding with them and then either exploding or crashing? Plus, you're telling us that the U.S. Air Defense Control is unable of identifying Canadian aircraft that they would see on a regular basis since they're there at the border between Canada and the United States. If you want to look into this account further, it is referred to as the Kinross Incident. We're going to jump ahead now to 1978 and the case I had originally looked into that ended up taking me down this uh, Michigan rabbit hole. 24-year-old Stephen Kobaki, originally from Deerfield, Massachusetts, was a senior at Hope College in Michigan, majoring in history. During his college career, he had spent time in Europe skiing and mountain climbing. He also climbed Mount Washington in New Hampshire. He was considered an experienced cross-country skier as well. Stephen lived off campus with friends, and on February 18, 1978, he told his roommates that he was going to cross-country ski about six miles. When Stephen didn't return home by late on Sunday, his roommates reported him missing. Snowmobilers found a pair of cross-country skis and a backpack on Monday, February 20th, along the shoreline of Lake Michigan, near the former St. Augustine Seminary that had been converted into a medium-security prison. Police said that the area where the items were found was an unsafe place to go. One officer said, There's a very strong current in the area, and much of the ice is broken and piled up. The search began in earnest once they had a location to search. Footprints appeared to leave the area and head onto the offshore ice, but there were no returning footprints, and that left the police to fear the worst. Kobaki's roommates told police that Stephen was known to walk out on the ice of Lake Michigan. A state police helicopter and a plane rented by the college searched until dark. A search was also conducted on land using snowmobiles in a three-mile radius from where the skis were found. Neither searches found anything. Police believe Stephen Kobaki ventured onto the offshore ice and ended up in the water of Lake Michigan. Kubaki's brother was surprised that his backpack had been left behind because Stephen was known to always keep the backpack with him, even if he left his skis to walk. He kept it with him because it contained his compass and other essentials. State police and Coast Guard helicopters searched extensively on Wednesday, and by Thursday the search was called off. Stephen was known to regularly communicate with his family but after he disappeared, there was no communication from Stephen. Bet you're wondering why I mentioned that. Well, in May of 1979, Stephen Kubaki walked into a relative's home in Massachusetts claiming to have had amnesia. That's right, 
Kabaki said that he woke up laying in a meadow, not knowing where he was and wearing clothes that weren't his. He walked to a nearby town and asked someone where he was. Turns out he was in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, only 30 miles from his father's home in Deerfield. He bought a newspaper and discovered more than a year had gone by. He went to his relative's house and was confused by all the hugging and kissing because he didn't feel like he had been gone that long. The last thing he remembers is the darkness and cold and fear of being lost on frozen Lake Michigan. The next 14 months, two weeks, and two days were a total blank. He had a backpack with him that wasn't his, and inside were hitchhiker signs, a t-shirt from a Wisconsin marathon, and some maps, none of which he recognized. Steve Kubaki refused to give any interviews, so there isn't much more to tell about his story, other than while he was missing, police thought he might actually have fallen victim to John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer, and they sent his dental records to Chicago. Obviously, though, he, he wasn't a Gacy victim. I'm not sure what to make of the story. I tend towards cynicism, so part of me wants to call BS on his story. I want to think he did it all on purpose and came up with amnesia as a cover story. But what if it's true? Where was he all that time? Why does he have no memory of over a year of his life? And how did he get from Michigan to Massachusetts? There are many questions with that story. Also, I want to point out, when I was a kid, there were some things that were, that we always thought were going to be a problem when we grew up. One of the big ones was quicksand. The, the way I grew up, it was like quicksand, you, you were going to find that everywhere you walked. If you went to the woods, you might, you might end up in quicksand. And one of the other things that I remember was amnesia. That was like a big thing in, in, that's odd, in my memory of something that was like sinister. You completely forgot who you were. I don't know. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe he fell in the lake and ended up with amnesia, but then how did he get out of the lake? How did he not die of hypothermia? We're not talking about uh, 60 degree water or a 60 degree day. We're talking about winter. There's snow on the ground. There's ice on the river. It's freaking cold. It's Michigan. How did, how did he not die if he fell in the water? So now we're moving on and we're headed to 2004 and the disappearance of Christopher Charles Halaxis. Chris Halaxis was last seen on March 17, 2004 in Paradise, Michigan. Halaxis was 30 years old and was heading to his remote cabin near the Taquamenon Falls State Park. Chris was an avid hiker and outdoorsman. He frequently traveled on and off trail and was known to create well-camouflaged encampments. He was able to live off the land if or when his provisions ran low and he had secret caches of supplies and equipment in various locations. If you know anything about preppers or prepping, you'll know this is a tactic used in the event you might have to bug out or leave an area. You hide supplies in locations so that you can access them. So on March 17th, Chris stopped at a BP gas station in Paradise, Michigan, and purchased soda and some snacks. He told the clerk, who he was acquainted with, that he was heading out to his camp. And that was the last time anyone saw Chris Halaxis. 
there was an extensive search conducted. They found and followed snowshoe tracks believed to be Chris's that stopped at the edge of Swampland. It was considered odd because Chris was so experienced and he had stashes of supplies available to him. He also knew the area extremely well. Despite the searches, Chris Halaxis was never found. Some people believe he may still be alive and living off the land. We're not done with missing people yet. We have, I think, two more. The next one is 73-year-old Joseph Cluley. During the summer of 2008, Joe and Lorraine Cluley traveled to Michigan from Florida to spend the summer. The Cluleys had a cabin at Higgins Lake area along the Taquamenon River. Joe often went to spend time at the cabin on his own since his wife Lorraine wasn't as fond of it as he was. On July 13, 2008, Joe decided to go for a hike along the North County Trail with his dog Chip, a nine-year-old black-and-white Chow-Springer Spaniel mix. This hike was something he did nearly every day he was at the cabin. He called to talk to his wife and he told her he would be back by 9 p.m. and he would talk to her then. But Joe never called. He was reported missing and the Chippewa County Sheriff's Office launched the largest search and rescue mission in the county's history. There were nine different agencies involved in the search. Those searching on foot were assisted by tracking dogs and cadaver dogs and there were searchers in planes, helicopters, on ATVs and boats. Searchers found his van parked at the trailhead. It was unlocked and the keys were in it. This was something that Joe was unlikely to do and it suggested that he had made it back to the vehicle. Through all the searching, no trace of Joe or Chip was found. Though the official search was called off, the sheriff's department continued to search and follow up leads and the family searched whenever they visited the cabin. On August 1st, 2008, Chip, the dog, inexplicably appeared at the cabin. Though he had lost some weight, he was otherwise clean and healthy. No sign of Joe Cluley has ever been found. A more recent vanishing took place in the summer of 2013. Two-year-old Amber Rose Smith vanished from her front yard in Nuego County, Michigan. Her father had been watching her play with the family's two dogs when he ran in the house for a minute to use the bathroom. When he went back outside, Amber was nowhere to be seen and did not respond to her name being called. The dogs appeared not long after, but they were without Amber. Hundreds of volunteers and emergency personnel searched for Amber, but they saw no sign of her. The next day, however, she was found about two miles from her home, standing in the middle of a road that had already been searched. She was staring off into space and unable to express what had happened to her, but definitely appeared to be in a state of shock and disorientation. The whole thing was strange because she would have had to travel through thick wilderness in frigid temperatures. One sheriff said of the strange incident, it's hard to imagine how a two and a half year old can survive that distance through the woods with that kind of temperature. There's some that aren't convinced she walked that entire distance. Maybe she was dropped off. Those are things we might have to determine in the future. And now, finally, we've come to the Michigan Triangle. Now, some of this tri triangle, or rather, I would say most of it, 
is over the area of Lake Michigan. The triangle spans from Ludington to Benton Harbor and over to Manitowoc, Michigan. And over the course of a hundred years, many instances of strange events have occurred, and most can't be explained. The first recorded happening was in the 17th century, specifically 1679. During that time, the Great Lakes played a pivotal role in the fur trade. There was a mighty trade ship named Le Griffon that embarked on its maiden voyage back in 1679. The ship intended to use the Great Lakes to navigate the most effective route to the Far East in hopes of expanding the fur trade into Japan and China. But the Griffon never made it past Lake Michigan waters. It disappeared within the Michigan Triangle waters. It was widely believed that it sank, but no sign of a wreck, the cargo, or the crew was recovered. Most researchers, however, believe the story of the Michigan Triangle really begins in the 19th century. In 1883, the wooden tug Mary McLean worked out of the Chicago Harbor. The crew witnessed mighty blocks of ice falling from the sky. For 30 minutes, it did not stop, and it was so powerful that the ice blocks dented the wooden deck. The crew managed to save some of the ice in the tug's ice box to show as proof. There was a large three-masted schooner called the Thomas Hume that was journeying between Chicago, Illinois and Muskegon, Michigan in 1891. The Thomas Hume was sailing back to Muskegon to the Hackey Hume Lumber Mill. The ship made the trip many times alongside the lumber mill's other ship, the Ralph Simmons. The Thomas Hume never arrived. It just vanished in the night. There was a reward for information and a search, but nothing was ever found and no one collected the reward. On November 22, 1912, the Ralph Simmons is transporting Christmas trees to Chicago. Again, the ship never arrives in port. The ship was spotted sailing in clear conditions with a distress flag flying. A lifeboat was sent out to provide aid, but when it arrived, there's nothing to find. There was no wreckage. One year later, Christmas trees began to wash up on the shore. In 1921, the Rosa Bell mysteriously overturned. She was found floating upside down with no sign of her crew of 11. There were ships nearby, but none reported any sightings of shipwrecks, collision, or crew in distress, though experts found signs that the Rosa Bell sank because of a collision, yet there was no other boat or ship in the area with damage. In 1937, Captain George Donner is sailing the O.M. McFarland through the icy Upper Great Lakes. After navigating through the treacherous waters, He goes to his cabin, telling the crew to alert him when they're nearing their destination of Port Washington. A few hours later, the crew members go to wake the captain, but their knocks go unanswered. The cabin door is locked from inside, so they break down the door and find the cabin empty. The entire ship is searched, but there's no sign of the captain. No explanation is ever discovered, and the disappearance remains unsolved. It's not just ships that are affected in the triangle, however. Obviously, some of the disappearances are attributed to the triangle. On June 23, 1950, Northwest Airlines Flight 2501 
is flying from New York to Seattle with 58 people on board. Over the Michigan Triangle, Captain Robert Lind radios in to request permission to descend to 2,500 feet due to severe electrical storm and high winds. Permission is denied. Then the radar goes dark and there is no word from the captain. There's also no sign of the plane. There was a search and Lake Michigan was dragged for wreckage, but no wreckage was found. Human remains washed up on the coast in the days after, but the plane itself disappeared. The wreckage still has never been found, despite a yearly search funded by nautical thriller author Clive Cussler and carried out by the Michigan Shipwreck Research Associates. Now, the strangest thing, in my opinion, about the Michigan Triangle is this next story. In 2007, an archaeology professor and his colleague conduct a sonar search of the lake looking for shipwrecks. In about 40 feet of water, they discover a line of large stones similar to Stonehenge. Divers were sent to photograph the area and found on one of the rocks a prehistoric carving of a mastodon, which went extinct 12,000 years ago. Because the site is still being researched, the exact location was not revealed. So far, there is no explanation as to who placed the stones there or why. Of course, there are some rumors of increased UFO activity in the area of the Triangle. In 1919, people observed unusual bright lights in the sky, and another time people saw two large bright balls of fire fall into the lake, and the explosion was so powerful it shook the earth. In March of 1994, more than 300 people witnessed multiple UFOs over Michigan. They resembled flickering Christmas lights and consisted of five to six objects, cylindrically shaped, or circles, with blue, red, green, and white lights. The sightings were reported to 911 and observed by police and National Weather Service radar at Muskegon County Airport. And on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. Remember, you can find Lurk wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, or at lurkpodcast.com, where you can find episodes along with links to our social media accounts. We have merch available at lurkpodcastmerch.com, where you can grab a t-shirt or hoodie and also help out the show. If you like what you hear, tell your friends. And until next time, keep lurking. Mm-hmm.